little bit about me. I was born in Kensal Rise. I was actually born in Park Hill Hospital, but spent the first year of my life in Kensal Rise before moving to Wembley. And I spent my formative years and stayed in Wembley until my sort of mid to, to late 20s. So effectively born and, and raised in Brent. Um, I was passionate about being creative as a young person. So I'm a creative director and artist and also a well-being practitioner. So I've had a, a kind of very um, diverse creative journey, but reggae and reggae culture is definitely at the kind of roots of that. Like a lot of um, Jamaicans, my parents came to this country in the 60s and settled in Brent initially. So it was kind of first borough that we were in and we pretty much stayed here, although we moved around um, a bit. But we settled on Wembley after sort of moving around sort of from house to house. We settled on, on Wembley and that's pretty much where we stayed for, for most of our lives. So as a young child, sort of growing up in Wembley during the sort of 60s and 70s and 80s, but more of the sort of... Um, I've said more in the 70s your kind of choices were very limited so you'd either go out and play or um, you'd stay in and, and sort of try and be creative so I'd always try and find something to, to either write on or draw on or make out of paper or whatever so it was very much a kind of DIY experience as a young person and um, I remember being very very young sort of pre-verbal I would say <laughs> I remember scratching around or sort of searching around one day for something to write with or draw with, you know, that kind of impetus that a child has. It's like, I want to make some sort of mark. And I can vaguely remember discovering something. I was like, okay, right, we're on. Now I just need something to, to draw and write on. And that was a sort of equal equally long challenge but I eventually found something and I think that was the start of my kind of creative journey however what transpired was that what I found in inverted commas was my mum's makeup pencil <laughs> and what I drew on was my parents wedding photograph <laughs> so I was quite proud of what I did however um what I realised at a very early age is that there is a consequence to making marks without permission. Now, for some strange reason, what follows next has kind of been blacked out, sort of like, you know, I think it's in my subconscious somewhere, but clearly I must have got punished for it. But a few days later, my dad came home with some papers and pens and he sort of said, you know, let yourself go. So that was kind of like the start of my creative journey. And I would say that you know, my father has a, a kind of lot to do with my my journey, just in terms of not just what he facilitated for me, but his influences and the things that he grew up around and clearly reggae music was one. So how would I just describe my, my dad? Which is a very interesting question because it's not the sort of thing that you sort of sit down and, and muse over. But, um, you know, my dad was fairly low-key, very hard worker, you know, held down multiple jobs that I can remember when he was sort of growing up. And, um, yeah, but sort of very, very community-focused and very kind of cultural and very proud of where he came from. So, you know, he was kind of very clear that 
whilst this is where he was, home was in Jamaica. And um, kind of the evidence of that was that either the, the things that we would do as a family or the things that he would get involved in, um, in and around the community, the relationship that he developed. So um, I grew up in a very kind of cultural uh, household in terms of Jamaican culture. That was kind of, it was explicitly clear that I was um, a, a black boy growing up in uh, effectively a very white world. Um, but we kind of created a, a, a home, not necessarily a house, but like it was a very homely environment. It's very, for me, it's very safe. And I think having a, a strong matriarch and, uh, and a kind of strong uh, male role model in my dad kind of created a, a safety for me. And, um, yeah, in terms of forming my identity, based on kind of his experience as a young person growing up and having all these influences, you know, he, he, I feel I am kind of like a, a reflection of him. Um, in Jamaican culture, there's this expression, if you look a lot like your father, you know, they'll say he's the dead stamp of your father. And so I was the dead stamp <laughs> of my dad. And so I kind of feel a, a kind of very strong affinity towards him. In terms of reggae culture influencing my kind of creative expression, I would say not initially because, you know, I did art school and then I left school and I went to college and I did graphic design and then I went to art school and, and continued to do graphic design and illustration and stuff like that. But reggae wasn't necessarily the impetus or the driver for any of that. It was, um, but it was quite important way before that in terms of helping me to kind of frame my identity as I kind of alluded to earlier um, there was a sort of displacement in terms of okay right well is this my home and I knew it's all Wembley and Bryn um, were places where I was I felt welcome because I was part of that community but um, I didn't necessarily explore beyond that so a lot of my identity was formed in the kind of relationships I had, the community I was around, my friends at schools, my family, etc., etc. And so what reggae and Caribbean culture gave me was that sense of identity. It was that um, very secure, very safe place from where I was able to kind of start to figure out who I was, what I was about, you know, which ways up, that sort of thing. So... In terms of me beginning to explore my creative voice, it was the it was kind of cornerstone really. I have a younger brother, two older brothers and two older sisters, um, and it was my immediate older brother who was a um, really influential. So he was older and was able to kind of like you know do all the rebellious things that I couldn't do as a young person. Um, and I often describe it as my older brother sort of breaking the rules and the law, and that is not a metaphor <laughs> or an analogy. Um, but he was also the person that kind of would bring um, the kind of musical influences into, into my life. So yes, my dad played reggae, but he played it of a, a, a particular generation. Um, and that was quite informative still, you know, because I guess on reflection, and hindsight is twenty twenty. He um, 
he was playing music that inspired him as a young person. And as I am of a certain age now, I realise that, you know, my dad was actually young once, hard to believe. <laughs> um, so I kind of get, and I even even then I got that, you know, music was very important to both my mum and dad because they, at once, before me and my brothers and my sisters came along, they were hanging out, having fun, and, and sort of enjoying the music. So my elder brother had quite an eclectic taste and uh, it wasn't just reggae, it was jazz and soul and funk music. But, you know, being a kind of hero archetype for me, he was very influential in that regard because he just sort of brought back these treasures from the outside world while I was on operation <laughs> lockdown, not allowed to go out, etc., etc. So he was pretty cool. In terms of reggae's influence on, on other music, I guess it's that. I mean, that's a, a, a difficult question for me to to answer in some sort of kind of broad academic sense. But in terms of reggae's influence and on on my discovery of other music, um, I think there's very something there's, there's something very important for me about what the music is saying and its country, its cultural context. So, you know, growing up listening to James Brown and funk music as I got into when I got slightly older there seemed to be a, a kind of a political backdrop to that because it was like, I don't know, post-civil rights or actually, or actual civil rights and it seemed to be politicised, some of the messages that he was saying. So in terms of the, the music that I was drawn to, there seemed to be a message in it. So whether it was kind of Curtis Mayfield or even some of the Motown stuff, which was very popular, um, you know, there were kind of messages expressed in that music that you think, actually, whilst it's pop music, it's actually bearing some sort of message. And I think that's kind of what drew me to hip-hop in the end. But reggae, as a young person, seemed to be the backdrop to a, a kind of cultural experience for not just the older kids, like my older brothers and sisters, but... Um, but for younger kids like me who were witnessing what not just the siblings but you know the adults were going through. So in, in many ways it was a kind of soundtrack to the kind of black experience. And um, as a young person trying to sort of filter messages and trying to understand the world from a kind of bedroom in Wembley, um, it kind of painted a picture of what the world was like mm. and there was a sense that actually that world was a little scary at times to a young person but also um, highly politicised. From my kind of my, my dad's generation, I guess this, um, like songs like 007, um, like Scar Records, very much so from, from my dad's generation. Um, and I can remember more from that, like my, my elder brothers and my cousins, I can remember like the first album that I bought was an album called Peace in the Ghetto by a guy called Tapazuki. And that had a lot of political messages in it. You know, my brother was, as I alluded to, um, 
let's just say he had somewhat of a reputation um, <laughs> and wasn't to be trifled with. <laughs> and um, so a lot of songs that lead to the idea of a rude boy or a bad man. Um, yeah, that was my brother, but you wouldn't know it mm. because he was like very kind of like low-key. But there were songs like um, Bad Man Posse by Junior Murphy, which I remember him having and part of my weekend exploits, because my brother lived in Stonebridge, we lived in Wembley, so I would go up to his house to hang out and uh, flip through his record collection. And um, part of that would be like, hey bro, would it be okay for me to just borrow these records? And he'd be like, yeah, cool. And I'm like, okay, now they're part of my collection. Um, and then the next time I would go, he'd be like, where's my records? So part of it was trying to steal records from him. But um, I do remember being with him, sort of driving into Harlesden to buy records. And one of the records he bought was uh, Police and Fees by Junior Murphy. But on the flip side of that is a record called Bad Man Pussy. And I remember it because it's on yellow vinyl. And it was the yellow vinyl that excited me. And I was like, I'm happy now in this collection. But... Um, I didn't get to keep it, but I got my own version <laughs> later on. So, so in terms of my interpretation of, of how reggae or Caribbean culture was being absorbed by, you know, the the wider media and the, and the, and the wider general public, it seemed very niche. Even though it seemed to me all encompassing, I felt like you know everybody was either into reggae or into soul music, and I, it didn't feel it felt like the kind of circle was complete in terms of people understanding it or getting it. But as I grew older, I realised that um, it was very much embedded within the kind of Caribbean community, um, young and old, and, and didn't necessarily exceed that unless there was a song that made the charts and appeared on top of the pops or, you know... Bob Marley was doing a concert, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, to my understanding, kind of enter the kind of public psyche outside of that. Um, I think there was a, an impression, and again, this is obviously speaking as a young person, but as I grew older, I realised that there was a very clear um, perception of uh, black people in terms of racism I think, you know, during the 70s, mid to late 70s, there was an idea about multiculturalism, which was a, a concept that was being floated out there, but, um, but, but very conceptual, because the reality didn't feel very multicultural. Um, and so, you know, again, reggae being a kind of vehicle to express the kind of frustrations or the challenges or the injustices of that transition from the dark days of um, you know Windrush and Enoch Powell and all of that to some idea where we were all kind of like you know um, treating each other as equal you know an equally sort of distant concept there, there just seemed to be a lot of content in the music that provided us with information whether that information informed a wider general public like I would I would suggest not, but at the same time, you know, when you had um, groups like Madness and the Specials and the Beat and the Selector playing uh, 
two-tone music, there was a sense that there was a generation who were much more open and a lot, perhaps a lot less, um, or a lot more open and understanding of Caribbean culture because they would have grown up with it. So I guess music kind of permeated or, or began to kind of change people's opinions, um, but of a, of a particular generation, not necessarily the older generation, but the younger generation. My experience at art school, you know, both art college and then art school later on. Um, yeah, so my experience of, of art education was interesting because now I'm outside of, of the comfort of, of Brent. Uh, and I'm in South London, I'm going to Canville School of Art, and I'm, you know, with all the kind of cool kids doing, um, taking this study very seriously. But despite Campbell being embedded in Peckham, um, I was part of a very, very tiny community of people of colour. And so it, it felt strange to kind of not only be outside of my borough, but be outside of my comfort zone somewhat. Um, but going through that process and then later going into work, um, I think reggae definitely, but other music as well, but reggae kind of, listening to it on my Walkman, helped me in those long journeys from Wembley to Oval to Camberwell <laughs> every day. Not that I'm still holding on to it. <laughs> um, but the, the person that I was and, and the identity that I had clearly formulated, which is embedded in Caribbean culture and, and I guess reggae music, um, helped me to retain a sense of identity in a an environment that wasn't necessarily um, open. So, you know, we're talking about an art institution which, you know, like a lot of art institutions in the 80s, didn't necessarily have a brilliant record on diversity. And so, um, running parallel to that experience was um, my involvement in the hip-hop culture, and that's when I began to sort of spread my, my colourful wings as a graffiti artist. And um, again, on reflection, I realised that graffiti was a way of me finding my creative voice. So it kind of justified the fact that I did, I, I defaced my parents' wedding photograph. Because, like, look, it was just part of the process, guys. You know, it was just part of my creative process. Um, but for me as well, graffiti was not my culture because I was aware that it had a history and it came from New York. And I was aware that I was drawn more to the process than the actual output. You know, I was doing something which is independent of art school and finding it was more of an internal conversation. And so I think that conversation started with the idea that I had an authentic voice which was being played out in the records of the time. Um, you had young people playing Lovers Rock, either toasting, DJing or whatever. And so I always had a sense that whilst there was a, a voice that I would use in the kind of grown-up world, there was a voice that I was kind of still evolving. And I was doing workshops, I was working with young people um, and I really enjoyed that work. So I think the the kind of sense of collaboration and community, not just around our peers in the hip-hop community, but um, 
the kind of exchange I was having with different types of young people, whether they were disabled or um, excluded from school or marginalised, you know, I had an affinity for them, you know, being kind of an outsider or being in the out group in various parts of my life, I was like, this is something that I could really enjoy. And I think it was it was around that time when I was at art school that I, I discovered working with young people, either through social work or pastoral work in schools. Um, and it was probably about 20 years later, fast forwarding. <laughs> about 20 years later, I was like, hmm, I've been doing this for a while. I think I am going to be a child psychotherapist. <laughs> and then I started to, to study child psychotherapy. And so how I, I think, I, I, um, I think throughout this discussion, I've kind of mentioned identity or the kind of theme of identity on more than one occasion. So there is a kind of ritual, a rite of passage for graffiti artists, which is, first of all, you have to create a name, um, an alias, if you like, for yourself. And I think that's one parallel um, with reggae culture. So growing up, nobody seems to call, be called Jeff Smith or, you know, um, Jason Phillips. Everybody had a, uh, a stage persona. Um, and often these were quite um, sort of braggadocious, you know, like Prince Farai or Big U or whatever it is. They wouldn't be unassuming. They would have kind of gravitas and weight. Um, but that um, name would allow them to express their particular personality, whether it's kind of humorous or political or, you know, whether they were a balladeer or whatever it is. So the idea of having an alias... Um, I was I was very clear about even before hip hop came along, and I think that's a kind of important for me a very important uh, distinction and point to make is that for a lot of young people, hip hop is kind of has this place in the in the kind of canon of culture as the the, the the thing that has inspired a lot of young people globally, and it has and being part of that phenomenon, especially the birth of it in the UK, I um, I have to acknowledge that it has a, it has had a huge global impact. However, what I would say is before hip hop, especially in the UK, um, and particularly in my own experience of growing up in London, reggae provided everything that hip hop did and possibly more. You know, people were expressing themselves through not just the music, but through spoken word and poetry, through fashion, um, and even in the, the songs, you know, it's quite interesting, like, I listen to, you listen to the songs, and you're like, you've got grown men um, talking about emotions in a very nuanced way, um, you know, which kind of challenges this idea about, you know, misogyny, or with it being very machismo, yes it was, but you had men talking about heartbreak and, and loss and um, sort of unrequited love. So receiving these messages as a, as a young person from men was really interesting, but also the lovers rock thing. So I'm kind of, I've grown up on listening to, to people talking about love and emotions. And um, for me, that's all like quite interesting because hip-hop 
didn't start the it started with the social aspect and that social aspect was evident in reggae but I think there was a lot that reggae gave me and my generation in terms of the fullness of our kind of um, child and sort of adolescent development and so the um, the idea of reggae having an influence on my kind of future kind of hip-hop journey yes there were a lot of things that were part of my adult development not just in terms of my voice but who I was as a man who I was a family man who how I relate to my community so the name naming was a kind of key point of that and um, as I've alluded to before my Influences were not just reggae, there were kind of other things as well. So I was very much into, by the time I got to art school, I was into uh, American culture, American youth culture generally, and the civil rights stuff and, you know, the, uh, the sort of Pan-African uh, material as well. And so I chose the name Pride um, because it, it spoke to the black American experience, but it also spoke to the black British experience and just as a young person what I witnessed or even what I kind of projected onto those people that I saw as, as victims of either brutality or discrimination or racism was their response to it and pride seemed to be the word that would come back to me all the time and I felt that it was a, a name that would suit me uh, and so I stuck with it. So that's the kind of, um, the, I would say, the connection between reggae and hip-hop and my kind of creative output and expression. In terms of places where my work may or may not be seen, <laughs> um, depending on who you ask, and is there a disclaimer <laughs> to sort of say? So the, my first piece was done in, in Wembley um, at the back of... Ealing, Lime, Ealing Road Library. Um, there's a place, there's a church hall called Union Hall. Um, or no, it was on Union Road. I don't think the, can't remember the name of the church hall. And it was my, my first piece, as we call them, in, in graffiti circles. Mm-hmm. And that's all I will admit to. <laughs> this kind of view. In terms of its its influence, I mean, I will still listen to to reggae in my, in my collection, if I hear something new, somebody shares something with me, I will listen to, um, so I will, I will, do I listen to, I don't listen to reggae as much as I used to, um, but it's still something that I enjoy listening to, and what I'm doing as I'm getting older is listening to um, older reggae, and, and some of the reggae that perhaps influenced the artists that I grew up listening to. Part of what I do as a kind of creative person, I, I'm very much into narrative storytelling. So whether that's through film or art or even just sort of good old fashioned talking to each other. Um, I'm, I'm trying to capture history as much in the same way as this interview with um, people who have had an influence on the culture, many of them who are of a particular age and um, have really interesting stories to tell. So looking back, I'm 
very interested in the things that shape us. Um, as individuals, you know, we'll kind of go through particular journeys and pick out certain things and be like, oh, well, well I, I remember when I did that, and that made me do that, and so on and so on. And, um, yeah, I'm interested in the, in the journeys that people t have taken to get to where they got to and their reflection on it, much in the same way that I'm able to kind of reflect on you know, my, my vandalistic past as a kind of four-year-old. Um, I, I think there's a really interest, there are interesting stories to tell, not just for the sake of telling them. I think one of the, the drivers is, is, is being heard and being seen. And so for much of my um, adolescence and early adulthood, I felt that there were voices not being heard outside of the music or outside of the kind of creative expression that would permeate its way into popular culture. And I think that has changed. Digital media has changed that. And so we're much more aware of what's happening in other parts of the world, but not necessarily um, in, any, in any depth. And I think there's a, a nuance missing in understanding the impact of the experiences that people have gone through. So if it is distilled into kind of like a three and a half minute pop song, it's easy for us to digest. It's much harder for us to digest the impact of being a single parent, being a young carer, being somebody who's, who's experiencing suicidal ideation or self-harming. And I think those things are hard for us to sit with. I know mental health is a big topic for, um, for us generally. Um, but I think there's something in being able to sit with, with all of it, not just the stuff that we like dancing to. Mm. I ha I've, I've had this thing about levelling the playing field. So in the, the work that I've done, whether I've done it in the corporate space... Where I've worked a lot of my career, or in the cultural space, or the creative space, or even in the kind of um, the mental health space, I think there is a leveling of the playing field, um, and I think part of that, or I'm sure actually part of that, is in terms of representation. So it's less about the what and more about the who for me. So there are. I would like there to be more voices which have an experience which is from the other side of the coin. Um, not just for the sake of having another face on the panel, but having somebody who's able to to provide a uh, an insight into that experience. Because I think that it's hard for people to empathise with something which is beyond their experience. So, you know, I, could, I, I don't know what it's like to be you know, a 45 year old um, white man living in Cheshire who, you know, makes knots or, you know, uh, you know is, works in the energy and utilities sector, although actually having worked in that sector, I, I do know what is, what he, what I have an insight into what his life might be like. I guess what I'm saying is, is that um, I just think we need to balance the discourse around some of the subjects I've mentioned, but that's mental health, the creative arts, 
the creative economy, um, general well-being, um, and actually the value of culture. I think institutions, and I say I think a lot, I'm, I, and I, it's only because I don't necessarily want to... I don't have any kind of uh, statistical evidence to hand, but institutions typically frame the value of something. So when I started Graffiti Art, and I remember doing an, art, uh, an interview on TV, um, down in Labrador Grove, actually, and we were at the ICA, and this is in 1983-84, and we're standing in front of a Jean-Michel Basquiat piece, and we're sort of like naive kids and thinking, hmm, that's not really graffiti, is it? Um, and then 30 odd years later, I think a couple of years ago, he sold the painting for like 100 million or whatever it is. But who gets to frame that? Who values that? Who says it's 100 million? Who says banks it's 100 million or 200 million or whatever it is? And so, in terms of what I'd like to see, I'd like to see us. Um, people from the community having a, a more of a say in the, the, the content that they create. The experience between real life and it being put on record and even performance, there's a kind of, uh, there's a sincerity to it, there is a, an authenticity, I hate using that word, but there's an authenticity to it, which, um, which makes, the, makes you closer to the experience so, you know, whether you've made, like, a couple of singles or whether you've made the Holy Pet albums, fans of reggae love their artists with a passion. Um, and so even people who are doing revival tours and what have you, they get so much love because people feel really genuinely close to them because they feel... I'm not saying this doesn't happen in other genres of music, but there is something about reggae which is not... Um, which has never been a huge seller in the UK apart from a few acts there's something about reggae that provides something more in the relationship so whether you are talking about social issues or political issues uh, I think there's just something about how people receive those messages about breakup about you know um being unemployed or whatever it is and I'm not saying that you don't get that in modern music because clearly you do and yes I guess there is different strokes I guess there is an authenticity in it but I also feel that it's coming from a place a place where we're trying to it doesn't necessarily feel like it's coming back into the community it doesn't feel like it's serving the community in the same way that perhaps reggae did 30 years ago clearly because the community in inverted commas has changed and that's in the digital space as well but I just feel that there was something about reggae that provided um, that gave you something more than just entertainment in terms of affirmation of who you were or just a, a kind of a connection to the to what you're actually experiencing you know it just provided some sort of comfort it's like actually that person gets that I'm sitting in Wembley unemployed or whatever and, I, and I'm not I'm not sure if, the, if it's, it's difficult for me to say because I don't consume music in the same way and maybe someone young would be able to say well actually Drake gives me everything that Alton Ellis did 
Um, I'd be up for having a conversation about that, to be honest, because I think it'd be quite an interesting one. Um, and maybe I'm coming from a place of nostalgia where there didn't seem to be so much um, for a young mind to consume. There seems to be a hell of a lot that a young person has to think about and that somehow they kind of got to fit their kind of emotional well-being into that. And um, I think perhaps it was a, it's a much more clearer... There wasn't as much resistance in me in, in an older person or even a person my age giving me a kind of music about uh, a message about reggae, about reggae music. I do have something that I do want to kind of, and I thought about this last night, so I don't know why, but there's also something about reggae that I find quite, um, that I find quite interesting. It's funny, I'm, I'm, I'm listening, I was listening to the Supremes, <laughs> a man of a certain age, on the way here, but they've done some bad tunes, by the way, one used by Dave, Ch- Dave Chappelle's, um, one of his specials, but that aside, <laughs> Um, one of the things about reggae that I, I that used to make me laugh and not laugh out loud but smile when I was younger was that it has this kind of it, it has this ability to do cover versions so when I was younger it was like and nothing is off limits do you know what I mean I'm not sure if it still exists but I'd grow up and I'd listen and I'd hear, <coughs> like, walk on by um, a Burt Baccarat song covered by a kind of group of young, a lover's rock tune called, um, called Walk On By, but a, a group called Motion. And it just seemed that there was something quite, um, that we kind of welcome as a culture about quality songs. So uh, it's too late by Carol King, you know, has been covered. All these reggae records, and there's, you know, even within the culture and in dance halls, whatever it is, it's not uncommon to hear Dolly Parton or whatever it is, or a country and western song, because there's this kind of affinity and love for good music, and that's something that I kind of find. I just I love that about reggae culture because you'll hear this beautifully sung song by a man or a woman and then part of the record would be that it would go into the version it would go into the dub and then that would be the exciting part for for me anyway because it's like right now they're going to start playing the bass and there's going to be somebody chatting over it but I just love the fact that nothing no song (laughs) popular otherwise is off limits when it comes to um, to reggae and cover versions I I have two um, that come to mind for this particular project. Um, and I guess, so the first one is Tapazuki's Peace in the Ghetto, you know, because it's like, I was like, wow, you know, somebody's actually talking about um, a politicised experience, which isn't American, um, and it's Jamaican, so it's from where my parents came from. And what I also like about it is it was the toasting, so it was like him... DJing over some classic tracks and that album tangentially took me in other places particularly him so you find an artist that you like and you start collecting their music and some of the music that he's played the stuff that he did with Horace Andy um, I'm 
Shuri did something. No, yeah, he did do something horizontal. But his, but that album, I was, um, I mean, visually as well, like you know, from a creative point of view, the the kind of fist with the barbed wire. It just, it's just a visual image that that speaks very much to the kind of core of my identity, and it's something that I kind of speak to because he came over here, came over to the UK from Jamaica in the seven years. So you kind of, you kind of mirrored the kind of experience of my elder brother. So I have an affinity for that album. And also, um, there was an album called, and again, this is what, again, what I love about reggae is they play with genres. So there's a dub artist called Scientist, and he did a series of albums, um, like Scientist Goes to the World Cup, whatever it is. And he did this album called Scientist Meets the Space Invaders. And it was a dub album with all these kind of like weird sound effects from video games. And I won it on a, I think it was, I think Rodiger did a radio phone in and I actually phoned in and I kind of won this competition. And I, and I got that album. Um, and I think, I, was that on green vinyl? I don't think so. But, um, but it was on green sleeves anyway. And again, the cover art um, really appealed to me. But it was just this idea of, like, in the 80s and video games, um, that reggae was kind of playing with these genres in a way that was quite creative and, and genre-bending. Genre so, yeah, those two stand out for me. 